You are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So Psalm 126 is for many one of the most beloved. And I'd say that for those of us who have been really nurtured in the music of Steve Bell, that may be even more the case. His song, The Lord Has Done Great Things, from his 1989 solo debut album, Comfort My People, resonates for many of us as we hear this psalm read aloud. Both Steve's song and this psalm carry the same force. Remember those days when our people's fortunes were restored against all odds. Remember what it was like when our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy. Recall the jubilation of being delivered from what looked only like loss and rejoice and then pray. Because we are again in this psalm, sowing in tears, weeping as we go, bearing only the seeds we hope to sow in the soil. This is the voice of a people who again know loss. And as they look back on being delivered in earlier days, they dare to trust that that will happen again. We will reap with shouts of joy. We will come home with shouts of joy carrying our sheaves. It is, in a very real sense, a psalm proclaimed against the odds. For the people who sing it have known loss and restoration in the past, and now in this moment know only loss. Surely, surely restoration will come again. Who can dare to sing such stubborn hopefulness during days of trial, loss, and challenge? I believe it takes one whose heart and mind, whose imagination has been touched by the grace of God. To sing such a song in the midst of difficult days is an act of stubborn and resilient faith. We see something of this stubborn resilience in the gospel reading for today. The story opens with a remarkably straightforward statement. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Six days before the Passover, that would also be the time of his own death. Jesus comes to the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead as a sign that death was not going to have the final word. Oh, Lazarus would eventually die again. He had been raised, resuscitated, not resurrected, but still his life is a sign and a hope. It's also a source of great hostility to many in places of power, as we'll soon learn if you read a little further along that, quote, the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jewish people were deserting and believing in Jesus. 
Bethany, where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live, is but a mile from ancient Jerusalem. So hardly a safe place for Jesus to be seen when there's so much turmoil bubbling up regarding his ministry and his teaching, his very presence. But he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he well knows the hostility that is brewing for him there. This stop to see Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, is probably occasioned by the warmth of their shared friendship, the strength of their shared bonds. Perhaps Jesus needs that more than ever before. And so what happens? Well, Martha served, which we know is her usual way from a story that Luke tells. Martha's always serving. Lazarus was one at the table with him. And Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. Now, pause for a moment. This story is familiar. So familiar that we can forget that there are significant variations between what the various gospel writers have to say about this anointing of Jesus' feet. In Matthew and Mark, the story takes place in the days right before Jesus shares the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room. It takes place at the home of a man identified as Simon the leper. The woman who comes and anoints Jesus' feet in Matthew and Mark's version is not Mary, but rather an unnamed woman. In Luke, on the other hand, the story comes considerably earlier It's set at the home of Simon, not the leper, but Simon the Pharisee. In Luke's account, the woman is clearly identified as a sinner from the city. And that city is not Bethany, but rather a place up in Galilee. Now that's interesting, isn't it? For some very modern readers who need things to all cohere in a very modern way, it can lead them to conclude that there are actually three different anointings. There's the one told by Luke, and the one told by Matthew and Mark, and this one told by John. But that's a very modern reaction to the world of ancient stories. So let me just remind you of a few crucial things. Firstly, Jesus was crucified sometime around the year 30. The first written materials we have from this Christian movement are from Paul, beginning in the late 40s, so almost 20 years later. The first gospel we have is Mark, which comes from the early 60s, followed by Matthew and Luke in the early 70s, and John from somewhere probably around the year 90. We're talking about some distance between the actual events and when they were first written down in a more or less finished form, which means we're also talking about the transmission of teaching and stories in a strongly oral culture. The preservation of teaching in an oral tradition is remarkably good. Their memories much better than ours because we depend on print. 
for many non-literate people, that's the only teaching they could hold. Now, secondly, is the matter of how a particular gospel writer might choose to tell or retell any particular story. Shifting the placement of a story as Luke does wouldn't have been seen as a problem because Luke is writing the gospel according to Luke. He's telling you the truth about Jesus as he's come to understand it, and his readers knew that. Now that comes even more to the fore when we come to John, whose gospel is far more impressionistic when compared to the other three. John switches around the order of many things. He includes a whole lot of material not present in the other three. He's less interested in parables than he is in what he calls signs of who Jesus is which are largely revealed in the interactions with people. Most striking is the fact that John never talks about a Last Supper, but rather about an upper room where Jesus teaches and then washes his disciples' feet. Now, modern sensibilities want desperately to line up the facts. These ancient writers wanted to tell the truth, the truth that they had received and wanted to pass on, and that's very different. So here what John wants to do is to recall the story of the anointing of Jesus' feet and also to say something about the figures of Judas and of Mary. As John tells us his good news, Mary does something almost unimaginable. Quote, she took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. In order to do that, she had to let down her hair from its covering, and to do that in the company of visitors. It is an inexplicable act of love for Jesus, and one all too easily misinterpreted by those who watched. This is what N.T. Wright says. Had she no shame, what was she trying to say to Jesus and to the onlookers? All sorts of disturbing thoughts must have been flying round the room. There is a particular tension in the air. After all the things that Jesus has said and done and the warnings of violence being plotted against him, She's let down her hair, got down on her knees, put this perfume on his feet, and is now drying them, massaging them with that long, usually tied-back hair. Judas rises in indignation, saying, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, the money given to the poor? The same objection is raised in the other three Gospels, Though there it's voiced by different people, here it is Judas, who John comments, quote, said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. There's a pall of silence that descends over those two very different people, over Judas and Mary, as Jesus pauses before he replies, leave her alone. 
She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Her act is accepted, even as he says, doubtless with some regret, that the poor are always in our midst, and they are, and will be until this world as we know it is ultimately redeemed and remade through God's ultimate action in our midst. Until then, we are fragmented. For now, Jesus is saying, accept this act that she has done as a sign of what is coming next in my life, namely my death. But, comments N.T. Wright, but, there is no escaping the challenge posed by the standoff between Mary and Judas. It's one of those scenes which positively shouts to the reader, where are you in this picture? And then he continues, put aside your natural inclination to distance yourself from Judas. After all, even at the last moment, none of the other disciples had suspected him of treachery. Can you see just a glimpse of him as you look in the mirror? Cautious, prudent, reliable Judas and shameless Mary. At the same time, of course, her shamelessness is revealed as a gift. And Judas' caution is exposed as a lie. John means to leave the reader with that extraordinary tension, asking us if we are more like Mary, or at least at our worst, more like Judas. Or, to return briefly to that psalm with which I opened, do we dare to sing alongside of Mary a song of audacious hope, even in the midst of the most difficult days? Is our faith as stubborn and resilient and even artistic as hers? And, this is the very real edge of the story, have we ridded the Judas, cautious, prudent Judas, from our own hearts? Or does his self-serving pragmatism lurk all too close when the chips are down? Just as John did, we leave that question hanging right there as we continue this journey through the closing weeks of Lent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.